Today's Bible reading comes from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. You can find the reading on page 994 of the Blue Bibles. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also, the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and, let, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put m my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who will be, who, who he has, for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw the worthless servant outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back. I was sitting in the, uh, the seat this morning, counting back years... Uh, I think it's nearly 20 years uh, since I was at Pennant Hills, uh, well, since I was a, a member at Pennant Hills, uh, but it's always a delight to be back and to look out and uh, to see so many familiar faces, but also in a different way, delightful to see so many unfamiliar faces of people that God has brought in the last 20 years uh, to be part of uh, this family of God's people. Let's pray now and uh, thank him and uh, ask him to, to speak to our hearts now. Father, it is such a delight. Uh, to be part of uh, your work of saving men and women and children and bringing them into the family of your people. Uh, thank you for the joy of participating in that in every way we can. Uh, we thank you now for this opportunity to be part of that process. Uh, we pray that the words of the Lord Jesus that you have given to us uh, will lodge in our hearts, in our minds and our understanding and will move our will into action that pleases you. We pray this in the name of your Son, trusting upon the help 
of your spirit. Amen. When I was in year eight, uh, way back in high school days, we had the school principal for our history teacher. Uh, Now, as you can imagine, this was an arrangement that had uh, advantages as well as disadvantages, uh, positives as well as negatives. And one of the positives, at least from a, a year eight perspective, was that he was rarely able to be with us in the classroom for the entire lesson. Uh, So what he would typically do would be, he would turn up at the start, uh, usually, give us three or four minutes of information and inspiration and then he'd go and he'd be busy doing headmasterly things around the rest of the school. Uh, He'd be gone for 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes. We never knew how much later it would be that he would return and the door would open and he would see how we were going with the work that he had set for us. As you can imagine, this was a scenario that was rich with possibility for a class of year eight boys. Risk, but also possibility. The general pattern we came up with was something like this. The first five minutes after he'd left, we'd make a quick start on the work that he had given us. So we had something to show for ourselves if he came back. After that, we'd post a sentry near the door to listen for the the first signs of his return and then it was game on. Uh, We'd have sword fights with rulers, Uh, we'd play that kind of flick football game with the cut down ends of paddle pop sticks, Uh, we'd play that game where you try and hit each other over the knuckles and make each other's skin bleed, all the kind of usual sophisticated year eight male pursuits. But the greatest game of all, unquestionably, the greatest game of all was the blackboard challenge. Uh, it worked like this. The room that we had our history class in that year was a quite unusual room. It was wider than it was long. Uh, it had bookshelves and cupboards along the side wall over here and a long, old-fashioned uh, blackboard, you know, the kind with green paint and chalk and so on, a long, old-fashioned blackboard across the front of the room. Uh, above the, the top of the blackboard was about, I guess, four feet of wall before the ceiling. And the challenge was this, to climb up the bookshelves on the right-hand side of the classroom and then to reach across with your foot and get it onto the top of the rim of the blackboard and then to work your way across in a kind of crouching position in that four feet of space up the ceiling, to work your way across Spider-Man style along the top of the blackboard using the various protuberances and hooks and bits and pieces in the wall as vantage points and get all the way across to the top of this long blackboard to the window ledges on the left-hand side of the room. Uh, We all tried. Uh, We all failed. Until one day my turn came around again and somehow, almost miraculously, it all fell into place. I climbed up the bookshelf, got my toes onto the blackboard Uh, inched across, uh, inched across, inched across the top and then this was the dangerous bit, the kind of leap of faith bit, lunged over as we all tried and somehow, miraculously, the fingers of my left hand uh, grabbed onto the picture hook we would all aim for two-thirds of the way across the wall. So there I was, uh, hanging off the picture hook, uh, face to the wall, toes on top of the blackboard, 
Now, the whole class breathlessly quiet as they watched history being made before their eyes. <laughs> hung there for what felt like an eternity, getting ready for my next move, stealing myself for it. And then behind me, you know what's coming next. <laughs> behind me, I didn't, I didn't have eyes in the back of my head, unlike teachers. From the back of the classroom, I heard the door handle turn <laughs> and the door begin to open. I froze. Uh, my life, all 13 years of it, passed in front of my eyes. I did the only thing I could think of to do. I, I, I launched off backwards, sight unseen, landed on the floor, <laughs> spun around, looked up and there before my eyes, thankfully, mercifully, was the face of James Tregurtha who'd just come back from the toilets and had opened the door. <laughs> the relief uh, was unforgettable, was enormous. But I also have to say that the experience, the moment just before the relief, the experience of hearing the door open behind me was one that will live with me for the rest of my days. It was that feeling of arriving at the moment of accountability and being found to be appallingly, utterly, dreadfully, scandalously unready. We're in Matthew 25, in the closing chapters of the Gospel story. And we're spending some time together this morning thinking about the words of the Lord Jesus about how to live as his disciples and how to serve him in the church and in the world in his mission in the period of the last days, the period between his resurrection and his return. It's the theme of this parable that we're looking at together this morning and it's in the theme indeed of the whole section, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, that it comes from. Throughout the section, there is a kind of chorus line that continues to be repeated that Jesus continues to say in his words to his disciples in the form of a command and a warning. Matthew 24 verse 42 at the end of the previous chapter, keep awake therefore because you do not know the day or the hour on which your Lord is coming. Verse 44 of chapter 24 Therefore, keep watch, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Chapter 25, verse 13, just before the parable we've read. Verse 13, keep awake therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. All of our lives, all of our ministry, all of our service of the Lord Jesus is to be done under the sound of that command and that warning. Jesus says to his disciples and by extension to you and me, live your lives, do your ministry in such a manner that you are ready for my return. Any time, any day, any hour. Which compels us to ask the question, what does that readiness look like? What kind of life, what kind of ministry is one that is ready for the Lord Jesus' return? And how will that command to be always ready shape the decisions we make and the patterns and the habits of life that we form as we live the days that God gives us before the Lord Jesus comes again? 
when I was a kid uh, growing up and when we would have uh, visitors around for dinner, uh, about an hour before the visitors would arrive, uh, we would all have a shower, come out of the garden where we'd been playing or working, whatever we'd been doing, come up in out of the yard on a Saturday afternoon, an hour or so before the visitors, and we'd have a shower and put on our best clothes. And then we'd go through the house, mum would kind of send us out and we'd go through the house, frantically tidying everything up, pushing things under the beds, packing away our toys, putting away the homework and stuff that we might have been working on, getting everything spick and span. And when it was all done, about five minutes or so before the visitors were due to arrive, uh, we'd we'd sit in the lounge room, Uh, mum and dad would put on some... uh, suitable music, some, some Mozart or some Haydn or something kind of serene and calming. And we would sit like statues, we children, there in the lounge room, looking out the window, looking up the road to see the first sign of the car, waiting for the visitors to come. Now, sometimes if they were running late, we could sit there like that for 10, 20, 30, half an hour, sitting there, clean and neat and nicely dressed, in the lounge room, not making any mess, not making any noise, just ready, waiting for the visitors to arrive. Sometimes growing up I used to get the feeling that when I heard people talking about readiness for Jesus' return, that it was much like that. Uh, Coming in out of the world, getting all tidied up, having a shower, having a bath, uh, putting on your best clean clothes, sitting in the nice room with your family, keeping out of trouble, neat and clean, hair combed, neatly parted, and waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. That was the message that I took. I I ran it through the filters of my experience, I suppose, and that was the message I took home from sermon after sermon about readiness for Jesus' return. But it's not the view that Jesus teaches. It's not the view that Jesus teaches. And in the parable we're looking at today in Matthew 25, the second parable of that chapter, Jesus tells a story that I think challenges and radically undermines that whole picture I grew up with of what readiness meant as we wait for Jesus' return. The story starts with a a man, uh, as it does often in Jesus' parables, a man going on a journey and entrusting his servants, in this case, with some money. Verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with the two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Then when he returns, the master calls in the servants and he asks them to give an account for what they have done with the money that he has entrusted to them. Well, the first servant and the second servant come before him and they report to him, full of, it seems, full of excitement and joy and pleasure, report to him the work that they have done and how it has been so spectacularly productive. Verse 20, the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, 
He said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And the master commends them. And he says, well done. And he rewards their faithfulness. In the small matter of a few thousand dollars with the opportunity to serve him in much, much greater ways. Jesus is never apologetic, is he? Or bashful about the idea of reward in heaven. Ever notice that? Over and over and over in the Gospels, uh, and for that matter, the Apostles too, uh, Peter and, and Paul and James and the others in their letters. Um, if you come as I do from uh, a Protestant background, then you may feel instinctively a little uncomfortable with the kind of language Jesus uses about heavenly reward. Uh, we hear the language uh, of words like that and an instinct within us uh, rightly, rightly reviles against the notion that somehow eternal life might be something earned by the deserving and not given to the undeserving. We rightly make that protest. And yet we also need to hear the message that Jesus tells us here and elsewhere again and again and again. The message that God will see to it. God, the God of grace, will see to it that the labour and the tears and the self-denial that we pour out for him in this life as we serve him, that those things will not count for nothing. That those things will not go forgotten or unrewarded. Those are not things that function in God's economy as tokens of merit uh, that earn our salvation. But they do count as fruits and evidences, stories that God will remember, things done in secret that the God who sees in secret will reward. And they count as things that will contribute to the texture and the colour and the richness the particularity of the joy that we will feel when we stand before God on the last day. And in the end, as it says in verse 21 and verse 23, in the end they will be part of the great reward, the overarching reward, which will be to come and to share in the happiness of God, to step into the delight that God has in his children and his servants and the pleasure that he has in the finishing of his work. That'll be part of it, to enter into the joy of your master. Well, the third servant comes along in verse 24 and his story is somewhat different. Verse 24, Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, you would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness 
where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's a tragic character, isn't he? This third one. It's hard to know how genuine he is in those words he speaks in verse 24 about his perception of the master and how afraid he was of him. Maybe it really is what he thought. Maybe that was his vision of the master. So, so out, of, out of correspondence with the truth of things, but maybe it was his perspective on the master or maybe it's just an excuse he cooks up at the last minute. The, the story doesn't give us enough detail to adjudicate between those possibilities. But either way, whether his words describe the real attitude of his heart or some last-minute excuse that he's just pretending to, either way, his actions still condemn him and his words make it worse, not better. If you take his words at, at face value, and I don't see a compelling reason not to, if you take his words at face value, what sort of attitude toward the master do his words project? Verse 24, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your ground in the gold, gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. He's convinced, he tells us, that the master is a hard man. Uh, he doesn't seem to love him or trust him at all. He has absolutely no confidence, the implication of his words is, he has absolutely no confidence that if he tries to do something with the money, he takes a risk, he makes a mistake, he has absolutely no confidence that if something like that happens, that there will be any understanding or any forgiveness or even any justice from the master. Fundamentally mistrusts the goodness and the justice and the grace of the master. So in his mistrust and his fear, he completely ignores the intention of the master in entrusting the money to him, the intention that he should do something with it. He completely ignores the master's intent and desire goes off instead, digs a hole, hides the money, leaves it there in the ground. And the master is not impressed with that approach at all. He takes away from the man even the one bag of gold that he started with in the first place and he sums up in verse 29, whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken away from them. It's not some sort of universal capitalist economic principle that Jesus is speaking about here. The point he's saying is that the person who comes before him stands before him at the last day having done even the tiniest of things for him because they trusted and they knew him and they loved him. They will receive far abundantly more than they ever understood or expected or deserved or merited or did. Abundantly beyond their wildest imaginings but the person who stands before him having never known him trusted him loved him with nothing in their lives that speaks of risk and venture and obedience that are the fruits of faith nothing that they've done out of love for jesus and trust for his word that person will lose even the capital they started with even their very life Well, how do we apply a story like that uh, to us 
and to our lives. What does it say to us this morning as we uh, contemplate the shape of our service of God and the decisions that we take and follow through on and revise and revisit the decisions that we make about the course that we chart in the years that God gives us on earth? Well, the implications are many, I think, but there are two points in particular that I want to underline for us this morning. The first is a point about accountability, a fundamental biblical reminder throughout the pages of the Old Testament and the New. Jesus is reminding us in this parable that everything we are and everything we have is from him. That ultimately it is something we hold in trust, not something that we own in our own right. Your house, your possessions, your abilities, your money, your training, your skills, your education, your opportunity, your privilege, All of it comes from him and all of it belongs to him and he lends it to us. He lends it to us for a lifetime. Verse 14, he entrusts his property to us. That is what it means to have breath in your lungs, blood in your veins, money in your bank account, life in your body. It is to be the beneficiary of a loan. Your abilities, your family circumstances, your literacy, your understanding of the Bible, your skills and abilities, your grasp of the gospel, all of those things that have made you who you are are yours by gift and loan. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? All of them are simply gifts that God has given to you and gifts that he has given to you in trust. Your whole life is lent to you by God. You are not at liberty not to use it. You are not at liberty not to use it. To bury it in a hole in the ground to keep it to yourself. Now the shape and the sphere and the place in which you use the gifts and the life God has given you may end up looking very different from those of the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them. The place where you serve God may be within his church in years to come as a pastor and a teacher of his people. It may be in the secular workforce as a servant of the Lord Jesus and of your neighbours Uh, For a decade or two, it may be within a home, uh, caring for small children, raising them in the knowledge and the love of God and providing for their needs and changing their nappies, imitating the value that Jesus places on small children in his kingdom. It may be here in Sydney, it may be far away uh, in places of darkness and great need, in places of darkness and great need here in Sydney too. It may be in a different, very, very different culture and a very different context. The places we serve And the ways in which we serve may vary enormously. But we are not at liberty not to serve. Everything we have, we've been given in trust. And there will be an accountability for that trust at the last day. Whether we sat on the gifts that God had given us or whether we ventured them, used them, put them into service, 
rolled our sleeves up, put our boots on, gave our lives for the service of the Lord Jesus. That much is immediately evident and obvious from the parable and is important to remind ourselves of all the time. And yet it's equally important to remind us of the kind of God we are accountable to. Because that point of, about accountability and that language of stewardship can sometimes go with a view of God that conceives of him as nothing more than a kind of heavenly auditor. Now, I don't want to be disparaging about auditors and accountants and so forth. I'm a son of an actuary. Um, I grew up um, in the home of the church treasurer. Um, nor do I want to imply that auditors all conform to the same stereotype. But I do have to say that the stereotype of an auditor that I have in my mind is of a, a rather pedantic, uh, finicky, details person. Um, you take your books to the auditor and they couldn't really care about whether you did anything much or achieved anything much all financial year. Uh, they don't want to know about your joys and your sorrows. Uh, they don't really need to know much about your turnover or whether you made a profit. The main thing they're interested in is whether you made any mistakes. They just want to know whether you got your petty cash logbook balanced. I have to say the kind of vision of the judgment of God, the kind of Christianity that I grew up with, had a tendency at times to see God in those kinds of terms and to view his judgment within that sort of category. Sometimes as a kid I got the impression that the God of heaven, the God who would hold me to account for the life that I'd lived at the last day, wasn't really all that interested in who you were or whether you loved him or even what you tried to do for him. Sometimes as a kid I got the impression that the only thing God was really interested in, the only thing he would examine at the last day, was how many rules he'd managed not to break. And sometimes the lifestyle I saw modelled as a good Christian lifestyle was really not about much more than staying within the rules and playing it safe, making sure you coloured within the lines and didn't break a commandment. That is not the God we worship at all. He's not just an auditor. He's also, you might say, an entrepreneur. There's a great business that he's engaged in and it's the business of salvation, a great, sprawling, enterprising, growing salvation to the ends of the earth. And he's a father. He looks upon us, his children, in the Lord Jesus with eyes of electing, affectionate, adoptive love for Christ's sake. And the response he wants to see in us is not just a life of rule-keeping, but a heart of love and a heart that loves the things he loves and a life that is poured out in the, the, the wholehearted, the passionate pursuit of those things. Which is why it's important that we hear the second application point of the parable as well as the first. It's important that we see this morning that this parable of Jesus is teaching us not only about accountability but also about boldness and purposefulness. That's the issue with the third servant, isn't it? He's so mistrustful of the master that he ends up obsessed. His whole field of vision occupied with nothing else than the fear, the terror of making a mistake. 
and the result is he doesn't end up doing anything. In August 1521, uh, way, way back in the early, early days of the German Reformation, Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend Philip Melanchthon. Uh, Melanchthon had written a letter to Luther, who was his, his, his colleague and his mentor. Uh, he'd written to Luther with a long list of anxious questions that he had been stewing over in his particular situation and people had asked him and he'd been trying to give an answer to. If you're a priest or a monk or a nun, he wrote to Luther, and you, if you made vows as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, are you now bound to the convent or, the, or to the monastery for the rest of your life? What should you do? Should you break the vows and stay or, or should you break out of the convent and go and serve God more productively perhaps somewhere else or... And what about the Lord's Supper? What if you, you go to Mass and the priest in the town where you live, in the church in that town, um, is still observing the medieval custom of communion in one kind, not two? What if the priest will give you only the bread and not the wine? Are you sinning if you take part in a mutilated communion service in that manner? And when Jesus said to remember him in bread and wine, what should you do? Should you stay away? Should you absent yourself from the Lord's table or should you go and take part in an unreformed celebration of the communion and so on and so on. A long list of anxious questions and Luther in his reply goes through, he opens his Bible, he tries to figure out the answers to Melanchthon's various questions one by one and he says question by question, well I've read the scriptures, I've thought about it, here's what I think and he gives the reasons from the Bible for his various answers to Melanchthon's questions. But then he says, and this is the really interesting bit, Having given all his answers, he then says, but I may be wrong. I may have got that one wrong. Sometimes you can open your Bible in fellowship with others, with an obedient heart, and read it and wrestle with a difficult question and take a punt on what you think God wants you to do and get it wrong and sin. How do you live with that possibility? Do you take the path of caution on every issue to the point where it paralyses you? Do you decide to do nothing so that you don't do the wrong thing? Do you wrap yourself up in a little world where the choices are safe and you never need to make any difficult decisions? Luther says, no way. God forbid. If stepping out the front door to serve God in his world means taking the risk of sometimes getting it wrong and sinning, making a mistake, making a wrong choice, then Luther says to his friend Melanchthon, Luther says, be a sinner and sin boldly and believe more boldly that you have a gracious God in heaven. Rejoice in Christ because he is victorious over sin and death and the world. Do you see his point? Be a sinner, if that's the risk. And sin boldly and believe more boldly in the victory of Christ over all sin and death. Now, I don't want to say, and I don't think Luther would have wanted to say, and I certainly don't think the Lord Jesus wanted to say, that God is apathetic about the little things careless about small sins. I don't want to think that we should disregard or disobey even the smallest 
word that God says to us in the scriptures. The smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. It matters that we avoid sin. Of course it does. But the glory of God is about far more than the fact that God avoids breaking rules. That he doesn't sin. And the obedience of Jesus to his Father's will was about far more than the fact that he didn't break rules. And the thing that God looks for in us most of all is that we love him with heart and soul and mind and strength and that we are passionate about the seeking of his kingdom above all and that we rejoice over the things he rejoices in and we weep over the things that he weeps over and that we venture out with our lives to do something with the resources that he's given us for the sake of the gospel. God is much more interested in that than he is in the mind of a Pharisee that obsesses over the minutiae of the mint and the dill and the cumin in the garden plot. Loving God is costly, of course. And it's costly to give yourself like that in gospel ventures. It's safe and comfortable and relatively easy to keep things ordered and neat and clean and unchallenging. But it's costly to give your life in the venturesome service of the gospel. There is a growing temptation as you go through the seasons of the Christian life to just pull yourself back bit by bit away from the front line of the battle pull your funds back out of the market into a nice safe fund. There's a great temptation to just retreat back into the safety of keeping with the rules and living a more or less upright kind of life. What does a life look like? What does a ministry look like that is ready for the return of Jesus? I suspect it won't always look neat and tidy and perfect and finished. I used to live in the inner west of Sydney. I have to say some of the neatest and tidiest front yards I ever saw were there in the inner west. Not a leaf, not a blade of grass was out of place. Why? Because there was, there was not a leaf or blade of grass there in the first place. It was just green painted concrete, you ever seen it? And pebbles and little statues. Neat and tidy and perfect and symmetrical and dead. That's not what life or ministry looks like when it's ready for the return of Jesus. Nor will it necessarily look big and impressive to the eyes of the world with a shiny building and a big budget and fantastic music. Seen through human eyes, your life, your ministry may not look big or heroic or spectacular or exciting at all. It may well be small and obscure and unrecognised with all kinds of loose ends, and messiness and unfinished business. But it will involve risk and cost and sacrifice and venture and perseverance in the service of the Lord Jesus. So I want to say to you and to myself, to me this morning, for some of us as we uh, wrestle uh, quite consciously 
points in our lives, junction points in our lives as we wrestle quite consciously with big decisions about the direction of the road ahead. Uh, To others of us who have set a course and are travelling along a path that we've been following for some decades now but who still need to stop and to take stock from time to time. I want to say to all of us, one way or another, don't be content to follow the path of safety and virtue as a Christian. Comfortable, easy safety and virtue. That is not what it means to live a life that's ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. In a world so dark with sin and need and suffering, in service of a cause so urgent as the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in days so short as these last days while we wait for his return, a neat and clean and tidy and finished life, all showered up and scrubbed up and changed and sitting in the lounge room doing nothing is not the way to wait for Jesus and his return. Pray instead that God would keep giving you courage to live a venturesome and a purposeful life in his service, that you would spend your life and your resources and your abilities and your time on the things that are closest to our Father's heart. Pray that God would make you a person who longs to throw yourself and to keep throwing yourself back into the battle wherever you can find a place to serve with the gifts that God has given you. And trust in the grace of God that if it doesn't always work the way you'd anticipated, things go pear-shaped, you make a few mistakes and you will, not a few but many. Trust in God that he will abundantly welcome you at the last day as his daughter, his son, his servant and that he would welcome you as someone who loved him who knew him as a gracious God and who built your life on that knowledge and who poured out your strength in his service. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet became poor for our sakes so that we through his poverty might become rich. Who thought it not robbery to be equal with you but who humbled himself becoming obedient even to death on a cross and whom you highly exalted. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who went out to the far place for us to bring us home. And we pray that having been found by him, we might devote ourselves to his service. We thank you for the lives you've lent to us, the wealth, the opportunity, the privilege that you've entrusted in our hands. Make us people whose decisions, whose habits and patterns of life are shaped by that knowledge, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.